Let's bow our heads to pray. Some of you can stay standing, some of you can sit. Everlasting one, love unending, glorious one, all-consuming fire, you are all these and more. And to all of these wonders, we can add that you are a God who speaks. You spoke to Moses, and we ask, great God, that you would speak to us this evening and form our hearts to serve you. For we ask it in the name of Jesus. Amen. Do please find the book of Numbers, page 133. In the beginning was the number. I learned that this week uh, from Melvin Bragg on the radio. Apparently, uh, the first written materials we have of any kind are records of the accounting uh, for wheat and barley in engineering projects in what is now Iraq, about five and a half thousand years ago. And the book in front of us this evening is An Accountant's Dream, Numbers. Well, that's great for accountants, but what about the rest of us? Aren't this many numbers just the tiniest bit dull? And there is perhaps a second kind of problem uh, with this kind of story from the Old Testament. The scene is, is quickly enough set. The people have been delivered from their slavery in Egypt and have moved into the desert. The book opens in their second year there, God has revealed his will to them and has come to dwell among them in a great big tent over which sits the cloud of his presence. And he's promised them that he will take them to a new land, rich with blessings. He saved them, he's come to dwell with them, and made them a promise of blessing to come. I wonder if that sounds familiar. After all, God has saved us not from slavery to Egypt, but from slavery to sin through the death of Jesus. God has come to dwell with us, not in a literal tent, but in the person of Jesus who we're told pitched his tent among us. God has promised us blessing to come, not in a new land at the east of the Mediterranean, but in a renewed creation at the end of all things. And so the second problem is if we have Jesus, why bother with Sebulun and Eliab and all those words that are quite difficult. Why bother with an old story when we have a much newer story? So it's worth saying always, whenever we hit the Old Testament, one or two things that are worth bearing in mind just about the Old Testament. Because St. Paul tells us in his letter to the Romans that things written down long before were written for our instruction, the people of God who know Jesus, to help us, he says, endure in our hope. 
if we can, as it were, get this story, then what it should do for us, if Paul is right, is to make us more confident in what God will do for us. Because we will realize how constant, how enduring his purposes and his faithfulness have always been. I love going, having an excuse to go to Thorns uh, in the center of town. It's a completely mad shop, if you don't know it. Uh, completely higgledy-piggledy. Um, no floor seems to stay the same uh, uh, shape for more than a, a few square feet. Uh, but if you, uh, this week, last week, I, I had to go looking for picture hooks uh, in Thorns. And if you go uh, looking for picture hooks, you'll find they come in two types. This may be very important for you, by the way, so, you know, pay attention to this bit. Um, uh, you, can, you can get, for, for light pictures, there's a hook that has a hook on it, and it attaches to the wall with one nail. But for heavier pictures, there's a, a real engineering genius that's got a hook and space for two nails. If you want to hang something heavier, you get the one with two nail uh, holes. We can take more weight as believers, more weight of hope, when we are fastened to God's purposes with two nails, the Old Testament and the New Testament. Yes, there are stories that are very much alike. Uh, Stories like we'll find through Numbers, in which there are echoes all the time of what God was doing later on. But that's the point that they're very much alike. God has been consistent and faithful through the generations. If his loving kindness extends from Jesus, one nail, back to Numbers, the other nail, then we are given all the more reason to suppose, to be sure indeed, that it will extend from us all the way through uh, to our final hope. Paul, when he's talking about what was written beforehand in Romans, he's quite clear. The Old Testament isn't just um, a volume that you may as well get to know now that you've become Christians, because you sort of should. No, Jesus has always been the first thought in the mind of God from the first page of Genesis onwards. The Old Testament is written fundamentally for the instruction of us who know him. It's always worth saying that sort of thing when we come to one of these books in the Old Testament full of weird words and and we may not immediately get our head around it. It repays the effort. So, where and when and indeed how many? The people are in the desert of Sinai, that that odd bit of land uh, between uh, Arabia and and Egypt. It's a year and a bit since they left Egypt. And in fact, the book of Numbers isn't quite uh, in chronological order. From chapter 7 onwards, we we go back a little in the story uh, as a kind of flashback. Now, if you follow it through, the book of Exodus will tell you all the adventures that they have had, the people, since they left Egypt. And not all of those adventures are good ones. But Exodus closes with the building of this huge tent, huge space for this tent. Then Leviticus, 
has all the rules for how to, how to uh, worship in this tent. And then we come to Numbers. And Numbers tells us how the people were arranged by tribes with the tent at the center, that's part of it, and then how they moved off in formation, getting ready to enter the land. Sadly, it is also the story of a very major rebellion of the people against God and the judgment he makes against them. It's the where, it's the when. But we have to look at the how many. And we hit a problem. On average, each tribe is numbered at around 50,000, men over 20. Add women and children, and you end up with a population for each tribe about the size of Greater Norwich. Total of 603,000 men, we're told. It's a couple of million people, probably. Now, even though the desert was less desert-like in those days than it is now, it is still a desert in those days. And it is completely impossible the desert should naturally sustain two million people in one location. Yes, they would be given great miracles of water and quail along the way. But two million is simply a number that doesn't make sense. Not only because of the scale of the number, but because of tying up one or two other things. Uh, the tribe of Levi is not to be counted. According to uh, verse 49 here, you must not count the tribe of Levi. They will get counted later. And when they are counted later, they're compared with the number of firstborn males in the whole of all the tribes of Israel. They have to be because there's some complicated calculation to do. The number of firstborn males, we're told at that point later in the book of Numbers, is 22,273. Now, if you look at the number of men over 20 and the number of firstborn males, to make that figure work, it means that each woman, each mother, would have to have had 27 boys. Logically, we assume she would also have had roughly the same number of girls. Now, not even with polygamy, which we're not sure that they would have followed at this point, there's no evidence that they did, can you make that number work? All of which gives us a good opportunity to tackle one of those things that comes at quite a number of us, I suspect, over time. You can't believe a Bible that's got so many inconsistencies. There are different challenges that are thrown at us, but it's a chance to focus on that one. The problem of the numbers in the Old Testament. The first thing to say is that these are clearly meant to be real numbers. They're not symbolic. If you go to the book of Revelation and to St. John recording the size of a great uh, multitude, he says it's 144,000, and then he says 12,000 from each of the 12 tribes. It's clearly meant to be a symbolic number. 12 is the number of perfection. It's a 12 twelves and thousands. It all adds up. There's a perfection about it that's meant to be symbolic. It's quite obviously so. But you don't get that here. These numbers we are meant to take as they are. They they vary according to uh, the tribes listed. Well, I'm no Hebrew scholar. But I'm told that it is possible that uh, since the word translated thousands can also in some times mean families... 
It is possible that, say, uh, 46,500 people, or men, can mean 46 families with 500 people in them. It's possible. It makes it much more a reasonable kind of number. But there are still problems with that. We can't be sure that that's what it would mean. It would have other consequences at other points in the numbering. We don't know. But we do know it's a census. So the recording of the numbers matters very much to the writer. There is no argument you can build on here for saying that Old Testament numbers uh, are inconsistent. It's just that we don't yet know how to translate what is in front of us. Now, if you can, try to picture the scene as we kind of move beyond the, 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 the numbering issue. There is an oblong tent sitting inside a... Fa- Come in, Cynthia, and sit down. My brother just died. Oh, I'm sorry. Mark, could you deal... Help, help, Cynthia, good. I'm glad you did. If you can, try to picture the scene that is in front of us at the start of Numbers. There's an oblong tent sitting inside a fenced-off enclosure. The enclosure is about 50 metres by 20 metres. It's huge. Around that enclosure, all around it, the tribe of Levi are encamped to make sure that no one else can cross into it by mistake. Beyond them... The other tribes camp by blocks, Judah and Benjamin, Zebulun and Issachar and so on. And at the heart then of that camp, there is the sign of God's presence among them. We're told that when the the cloud moved off by by day or the fire by night, the people moved with God and they recamped, always in the same shape, the tent at the center. They have the blessing of God at the center of their lives. But this numbering now, this is the numbering of an army. God says to Moses, you and Aaron are to number by their divisions all the men in Israel, 20 years and more, who are able to serve in the army. And this, for me, is where it gets interesting and perhaps a little odd. When they escaped from Egypt through the Red Sea, it was a complete and evident miracle. They went through on dry land, And then they watched Pharaoh and his army, who'd been chasing them out of Egypt, get stuck in the mud and then washed away as the waters returned. Salvation from Egypt has happened completely, as we say, by grace. Entirely by the efforts of God on their behalf. And sometimes they remembered to be grateful. But this is something quite different They are going to have to fight now. This is the numbering of an army. And not just, oh, it would probably be a good idea to get ourselves an army, in some general sense, like we might reckon, but rather every single man over 20 is going to be in this army, readied to fight. And this, for me, is where I begin to learn something of the pattern of the way God works. Even not just now in numbers, but as it's reflected in the miracle that is Jesus. 
It is one of the mysteries of God that he gives, and he gives freely. We call it grace. God gives when we are powerless to make any difference to our plight and peril. That's what the Exodus is. It's sheer miracle, sheer deliverance. God is the one. He's going to be greater than 603,000 that are going to be numbered in the desert of Sinai. And yet that same God goes on to ask nothing less than total engagement, total commitment from those for whom he has given himself. In fact, I suspect that we're meant to read numbers with a rising sense of astonishment. We begin with the census of the army, and so it's about the army, so it's going to have be battle upon battle, isn't it? But no, it isn't. The army that is counted at the beginning of numbers never has a single battle in the book. The army that occupied our attention so much at the start... But, of course, they didn't know that that would happen. The point is not whether they fought. The point is that they were ready in heart and mind to fight. There are stories of battle in the book of Numbers, but the men counted in this census are all dead by then because of the disobedience of the whole people, and it is a new army that ends up fighting. Well, if that's the case, if we've got this great deliverance in Exodus and then this huge weight placed upon the counting of an army, not an army that is going to fight, but an army the importance of which is that it must be ready to fight, ready in heart and mind to fight, then we're ready to start drawing a couple of conclusions from the story. And I want to do so by way of an illustration. I guess all of us know that um, uh, white light is not actually white take a prism to it, and we see that it is made made up of the red and the orange and the yellow and so on. That's simply a fact. We don't complain because white light isn't coloured or because blue light is coloured. It's just the way it is. They're not better or worse. And Jesus is often enough revealed to us in light, whether it's the white light of the star over the manger, whether it's the white light as he is transfigured and transformed, before his followers, whether it's the white appearance of the figure who is revealed uh, walking around the lampstands in uh, the book of Revelation of St. John's dream. But just like a prism splits light so that it spreads out, so the Old Testament spreads out the glory of God in Christ in many and various ways, each of which contributes to the splendor of that one white light. So, for example, in the spectrum, red and green may be opposite each other, but both are needed to make that contribution. That's the illustration, but let me kind of follow it through. We've just been through Christmas, in case you hadn't noticed. And the story of the baby in the manger, it's an amazing story but we may be in just a little danger of thinking that the story is cute and charming. At the other end of the spectrum, here in Numbers, we learn from this chapter of the Levites 
and the reminder of what it's like for them when God dwells in the midst of his people. Verse 51 says, anyone who goes near the tent who is not a Levite will be put to death because God's holiness is a blazing fire that burns up all those except those God has appointed to serve him. Now that's not a better or worse picture. Bethlehem and the Levites at the tent. Both of them are real colors within the spectrum of light that in its fullness shows us Jesus. And what the Levites do in Numbers chapter 1 is remind us not to treat Jesus lightly just because he's born in our world and because he's gentle and humble in heart. As the writer of Hebrews reminds us, and it's in the New Testament, our God remains a consuming fire. When we summon men and women, boys and girls, to follow Jesus, we don't just do it as a loving invitation. That may be one part of the spectrum. But we also do it as a command so that those we care for are not consumed by the one who is judge of all. So let's allow numbers, and indeed all of what we call the Old Testament, serve to to spread out the colors for us of the glory of God as it then gets focused and concentrated in the person of Jesus Christ. More immediately, and as a second and final point, let's observe that we've no reason to suppose our life under the New Testament, the New Covenant, will be any cushier, if I can put it that way, than theirs was. Yes, it's true that the gift of the Spirit was occasional for them upon some of God's people, but now one cannot be among God's people without being gifted, born from above, by the Holy Spirit. Yes, it's true that we have the final revelation, while they only had the foreshadowing. Yes, it's true that we can come into the presence of God himself in a way that they could not. But none of that is any reason to back off from what most of this chapter is about. They were readied for war. And not less do we need to be readied for war. By the grace of God, as it was true for them too, many things will not come their way, our way. But my battle against my own sin will be an unrelenting battle until the day I die, and so will yours. The war that we live out in life, what Christ has won for us in his death, will never cease until we enjoy his presence face to face. This picture of battle readiness enhances and deepens the picture of the believer's life that we get from the pages of that Newer Testament. See, none of those who were being counted that day. Did you notice that um, God tells Moses, just in case anyone thinks that they can escape, I want you to take with you the heads of each of the families because they'll know everyone. And I want want that person to be with you doing the counting. So no one could hope to hide behind the wagons, as it were, saying, well, I won't need to fight. I'm going to escape. Every single one, all of those eligible, is counted. There are no get-out clauses. Maybe it'll be tonight. Maybe tomorrow. You will face a choice in which the world says to you, go this way, 
And your battle-ready task is to say, no, I am of God's people. I shall go this way. The feasting is over. The tree will come down. The new year is upon us. What a good time to be reminded that precisely because Jesus Christ has won the war, the battles we face are worth fighting. What a good time to be reminded that by his grace they can be won. Let's pray. I'll pray a general prayer in a moment, but you may like just to bring to mind maybe that there are particular battles that are in front of you right now. Uh, Let's remember Cynthia, who's just come in with news of the grave illness and perhaps death of her brother and the challenges that that will bring for her. Lord God, there will be some of us here uh, tonight who would very much like to hide behind the wagons, who would like to feel that God is in our presence and that we get the good stuff, but we don't really either want to be made ready for war or we feel that we've had enough and it's our turn to hide behind the lines. And there are all kinds of relief that we would pray for one another. But we can't leave this chapter this evening without praying for the grace to be willing to be counted among those who will battle by the power of his Spirit in the name of Jesus Christ. Battle in the conflicts that we face in our own minds and hearts and spirits Battle as we are called to stand for Christ in a world that may not want to know him. Lord, take these uh, words arranged so differently from the way we would do things these days and let them stir our hearts to stand for you. Not even in just the days, but the hours and days and months and years that lie ahead. So that whether we get to fight a particular battle or not, we may know that we were made ready. We ask it in Jesus' name. Amen.